Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I don't know about you, but I never read the business pages of a newspaper before I was 45. Then something changed. My interest in banking, financial markets, technology, and its effects on our lives, my whole view of the role of economics shifted. Today, it's the first section I go to, in my own case, it's the New York Times, because I have questions, lots of questions. Roughly three years along from the economic meltdown that still affects us all, I made a call to Dr. Joseph Stiglitz at Columbia University. Dr. Stiglitz is a rare contradiction, a Nobel Prize-winning economist who speaks in plain English. He's a renowned expert on taxation, trade, and development who would also be good company at a ball game. Presidents continually turn to him for guidance. Under Clinton, he chaired the Council of Economic Advisors from 1995 to 1997, but he shows no restraint when unleashing criticism of their policies. Of President Obama's financial rescue plan, Stiglitz said that whomever designed it was, quote, either in the pocket of the banks or incompetent, unquote. Stiglitz was the chief economist at the World Bank for three years until January 2000 when he resigned in protest over the bank's policies. He wanted more transparency at the bank and felt that the money doled out shouldn't have so many strings attached. Joseph Stiglitz gets around. He's lectured all over the world and taught at Yale, Stanford, Duke, Oxford, and Princeton. I met him at his office at Columbia University where he's taught since 2000. And coming here today... I was reminded of why they have orientation weeks at colleges where you spend the first week just finding where all your classes are. <laughs> it was like an Escher print getting here to your office today. The, the With Stiglitz, you're in no need of an orientation. Even if you're talking about the financial crisis, Joseph Stiglitz calls them like he sees them. Where both Bush and Obama made a fundamental mistake is they didn't distinguish between saving the banks— 
and saving the bankers and the bank's shareholders and bondholders. It was both an economic and, I think, a political mistake. Because what Americans saw was that hundreds of billions of dollars were going in to save the bankers, their shareholders, and their bondholders without any constraint on how that money was going to be used, paid out in dividends, paid out in bonuses. Bonuses. Do you think that because of the urgency, do you forgive them and say there wasn't time or they should have known that there should be less discretion for the banks to distribute the money as they saw fit? I think there was no excuse for what they did. The UK did a much better job in terms of playing by the rules of the game. Did they do it after we did? They did it roughly the same time. Do you think that there's a fundamentally different mindset about investment banking over there than there is in the United States? What was quite remarkable is that in the UK, banking was even more important than it was in the United States. But the government there had a greater sensitivity about what needed to be done. So their view was... Just like in the United States, the argument was we needed to keep the flow of money lending going if we're going to keep the economy. And that was what was so absurd about what both the Bush and Obama administrations did. They gave money to the banks to recapitalize, to lend. But then they said, by the way, you don't have to use that money to recapitalize and lend. (laughs) You can use that money to pay dividends or to pay bonuses. Mm -hmm. The critical question is, was there something else they could have done? There were many other things they could have done. Such as? One of the things they could have done is in giving money to the banks, they could have said, you have to continue your lending, especially to small and medium-sized enterprises, and not use the money to pay out bonuses or to pay dividends. The second thing they could have done is— What do you think the banks would have done in response to that? What would they have said? I think the banks had no choices. What prevented them from going to the banks and saying, we're going to give you $700 billion or whatever the figure was initially, and we're going to give you this money, and you are forbidden from using more than a certain percentage of it for distribution in bonuses and in shareholder dividends. Why don't you think they did that? Very simple. Uh, (laughs) Politics. Uh, They got a lot of money. And who do you think was the person that was... Was it Paulson was the one who was telling, in your estimation, to give it as unrestricted money? I think it was a broad consensus between Paulson, Bernanke, and Geithner, who was the head of the New York Fed, which was playing a pivotal role because it was the big banks in New York. We're still in Bush's term, and it's the first bailout, and Bernanke and Geithner are predisposed to this as well. Exactly. Why do you think? Why? I think they panicked, and I think they bought into the mindset and the arguments of the banks. Not a surprise that the bankers tried to instill fear. But how does someone instill fear? How do bankers say, if you don't give us this money unrestricted, this is what's going to happen? What's going to happen? The fear, I think, was that the banks would never be able to get private money People would leave banking. Now, to me, it was pretty clear. Where are the bankers going to go? 
especially as the economy goes into a downturn. It wasn't as if there was a lot of offers for these guys who had brought the economy to the brink of ruin. It didn't look good on their resume. It didn't look good on their resume. But you talked about private money. So you're saying if you don't give us this money unrestricted so that shareholders can be rewarded, shareholders will view this as a very, very bear market and a bear environment. And you won't be able to raise additional money. And to keep the banking system going, you'll need more public money. And that's going to be very difficult. Do you find that on Wall Street, because what this sounds to me like, that there really is just this kind of generic sense of an administration, of an SEC, of a White House and a Treasury Department? that are Wall Street friendly and those that are not Wall Street friendly. And what defines Wall Street friendly is you just don't tell us what to do. We completely run our own shop and you just stay out of it. That's right. We're the experts. We're the experts. Don't mess with us because we're vital to the economy. If you get us upset... They're like a terrorist with a bomb strapped around their body. If I go down, you're all going down. You see it in, in so many different context. For instance, when AIG was bailed out to the tune of $150 billion, a critical point in that bailout was that AIG, the government, bought back the derivatives and they paid for those derivatives 100 cents on the dollar. They didn't want to say where the money was going. Eventually, pressure was put on the Fed to tell where the money went. The largest recipient was Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. There are other instances what the banks did in the process of foreclosure, uh, the robo-signing, where they were signing affidavits that they had inspected the records and that these people deserved to be thrown out of their houses because they owed money. They had not inspected. So we basically had a banking system where writing mortgages, the banks and the lenders didn't care whether you could pay or not. Because once they made those loans and those loans crapped out, they believed what? The government was going to step in and bail them out. Well, it was actually worse than that because they were engaged in predatory lending and discriminatory lending. So it wasn't just that they didn't care. They went after the poorest, least financially sophisticated Americans. And they tried to move the money from the bottom of the pyramid to the top in a way that was unconscionable. When the banks shift to, as you said, both predatory and discriminatory lending, having a market in which a wholesale number of people default on their mortgages, what were the banks hoping for in that market that they created, which was that the government would swoop in and bail them out? A couple of interesting aspects of their strategy. One was this financial development called securitization. So it used to be that when banks wrote a mortgage, they held on to it. And because they held on to it, they wanted to make sure it worked well. But once they started selling them... Once they started securitizing, selling them to others, their object was simply to write a product that right. others would buy. So when the sale by the banks, by the mortgage lending institutions, by the securitization of those things, when did that start? Well, the process really began in the early 90s. I wrote an article in around 1991 anticipating that this whole securitization was going to end in disaster and <laughs> and saying that they were going to underestimate the probability. Is this the of, thing you've won your greatest number of awards for with that anticipation? <laughs> no? Okay. No, we'll no, get but it was, it was uh, interesting to see the extent that I had anticipated. You were on to something. What, what had actually happened, namely, they underestimated the likelihood the prices will go down. The models the rating agencies were using assumed that prices never go down, when in fact, you look around the world, you see they often do go down. Right. Let's stop there. 
Talk about the rating agencies. Yeah. You must be a profound critic of the rating yeah. agencies. So the rating agencies believe that you might say in financial alchemy, you take a bundle of mortgages that should have been F-rated and you put them together and you convert bad mortgages into an A-rated security. But you dilute them. That, that was the you idea. You can't have a whole bundle of all F and call it A, can you? Well, that's what they did. So they took what was a homogeneously bad bundle. Well, not all bad, but there were a very large fraction of bad. Right. And, and Overwhelmingly uh, bad. Oh, and what happened was that these bundles collapsed. The rating agencies are, they serve at the behest of who? The rating agencies are paid by the investment banks. Right. Uh, so it's like playing in the NFL and the ref won't throw the flag because the ref isn't working for the league. The ref is working for, some refs work for each team. For each team. Right. They had incentives that we now know to distort very clear, the facts. To distort the facts, to give A ratings. Uh, they helped the banks design products that met the m- minimal standards that were... Where do people turn for an unbiased rating of a securities now? Where do they go? That's the fundamental problem, that information on the kinds of securities that arise out of the securitization process is very difficult to get unbiased information. And there's a quandary. If the producer of the securities, the investment banks, pay, you can't trust the rating agencies. But it's very hard to get the consumer to pay because one investor might pay, but then that information can spread to others, and it's hard to create a viable business model that will provide the finance for the supply of information. And does any arm of the government have any legal authority over the rating agencies to force them to adjust their standards and to adjust their methodology? The answer is no. Why? Uh, uh, they've tried to claim that it's just a matter of free speech. My own view is that there needs to be more accountability than that. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. More in a minute. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and I'm talking with Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize-winning economist, professor, and author. We met in his office at Columbia University. He spent a good part of his career advising world leaders on economic issues, but Joseph Stiglitz is no stranger to the world of academia. I went to Amherst College as an undergraduate. I began studying physics. I just loved the elegance, the mathematics. But sometime in my junior year, I decided that my real passion was economics. I had grown up in Gary, Indiana, which was in some ways an amazing industrial town in the southern shores of Lake Michigan. It was founded by U.S. Steel as the largest integrated steel mill in the world in 1906. And it typified in many ways America of the 20th century. Heartland America. And you saw both the strengths but also some of the weaknesses. So as I was growing up, very aware of very serious poverty, the economic system didn't always work well. We had episodic unemployment, business cycles. You could see around you lots of discrimination. And it just didn't seem like a system that was working. Um, it was working for some, but not working for an awful lot of people. So in my junior year in college, I decided I wasn't going to become a physicist. I was going to be an economist. I went to my advisor's. They said, you should go to MIT. (laughs) And so I went to MIT and began doing work, trying to understand why markets often didn't work as well as those people who said the markets were working perfectly. Uh, Free markets. Free markets. People like University of Chicago economists who talk about... Friedman. Friedman. I had grown up and I had seen the markets were not perfect. But I wanted to know why they weren't. What was wrong with our analysis, with our arguments? But then I very quickly started working into one specific issue that turned out to be very important. What are the consequences of imperfect information? And some obvious ones related to what happened in the recent crisis. It was the presence of imperfect information that allowed the banks to take advantage of others. Now, when you say this idea of imperfect information, 
Do you think that the system has grown and has evolved so quickly over the last, let's say, 20 years that the government can't keep up? Do the Goldman Sachs of the world and do all the most, I don't want to say predatory, but the most velociraptor-esque <laughs> investment banking houses who just are devouring profits and just devouring equity, is it because the government just can't keep up with them? No, could have done a much, much better job. So you believe that's a profound statement. You believe the government could have prevented much of what happened. It could have prevented much of what happened. And you're not saying that in and hindsight. At the time, they knew there were steps they that, could have taken. In particular, there were people even on the Fed that warned them. Ned Gramlich. He was on the board of the Fed. And he said something wrong is going on in the mortgage market. Right, in terms of the securitization problem. The problem was that you had... At the head of the Fed, some people who believed that markets always worked, that there weren't such things as bubbles. Do most people in your field, the most sophisticated, most knowledgeable minds in economics today, do you find many of them view uh, these bubbles like people in California view the San Francisco earthquake? That's a total anomaly. What happened in the 20s would never happen again. As we get toward 07, 08, no matter how the, the house was shaking, they said, it's not going to be like 29 if, again. If you... Look at the history of capitalism. There have been bubbles, panics, and bubbles that broke repeatedly. With each bubble, they look at the past and say, oh, those guys were very stupid. We're smarter. And of course, that was true in the last bubble. They believed that it was not a bubble because bubbles were a thing of the past. We are smart people. We don't have bubbles. But in fact, the telltale signs that there was a bubble were there for anybody who wanted to look at them. And there were instruments that were there to anyone who wanted to, to tame the bubble, like raising the down payments. What is Volcker saying that you agree with or not? Yeah, I think Volcker uh, is one of the heroes of this story. Why? Um, Volcker realized that financial markets needed to be regulated. And that was one of the reasons that Reagan looked for somebody to replace him. After all, in terms of what central bankers normally are graded on, he had brought down double-digit inflation down to very low levels, and that would normally have been rewarded by a reappointment. But he was dismissed. When Reagan comes in, people view this as this watershed in that area that, that about smashing government regulation. What did Reaganomics mean to you? People throw that word around like it's this magic dust, you know. What did Reaganomics mean to you then? And what does Reaganomics mean to you now? I saw Reaganomics as perhaps another act in a long-standing battle about the appropriate balance between markets and government. And Reagan came in and tried to put his hand on one side of that balance and say, let's get rid of government. Let's just let markets rip. Uh, Why do you think? I think it was just ordinary greed, the belief that if we got rid of the regulations, Donald Reagan, we, all that we could make more money. Yeah. There was one other argument that in a way shows the naivety of the reasoning. In the decades after Glass-Steagall, which was this law that separated investment banking from commercial banking that had tried to put restraints, that avoiding some of the conflicts of interest that had marked the past. In those decades after the passage of these whole series of laws in the Great Depression, the country had 
been remarkably stable. There had not been a financial crisis. And because there had not been a financial crisis, they made the wrong inference. They said financial crises are a thing of the past. But they were a thing of the past only because we we had the regulations. So once you repealed Glass-Steagall, once you got rid of the regulations, once you started going into deregulation, you started having crisis after crisis. Do you think we should reinstitute Glass-Steagall or a modification thereof, something uh, new? What is clear is that we need to have stronger regulation. The Volcker Rule is one way of doing it. How would you characterize the Volcker Rule for people who don't know what it means? Uh, the Volcker Rule is a, a restriction that says banks are supposed to be serving their customers, not making money for their own portfolio. So it's an attempt to say you can't engage in what are called proprietary trading, trading on your own behalf, gambling against your customers in the way that Goldman Sachs did. It just opens up such a can of worms that it's very difficult for government to stop it once you open up that possibility. Barney Frank, what did you make of what happened with him, with uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, and what what the issues were that people were contending about Frank and what he did? A couple points. One, he and the Democrats more generally were very instrumental in 94 in giving the Fed scope for regulating better. They were more pro-regulation. Yeah, and had had the Fed implemented the regulations that they had the authority to implement, we would have avoided the crisis, at least the, uh, the worst parts of it. There's a very large controversy over the role of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the current crisis. In my own mind, there shouldn't be any controversy. Why? The evidence is overwhelming that they were a latecomer to the problems and basically a sideshow. The fundamental problems were created by the private banks in their subprime, fraudulent, predatory practices. The, if you so look, in your mind, they don't deserve to be lumped into the same categories? Oh, uh, definitely not. If banks. you look at their default rates, their problem rates, they perform far better than the private sector. Now, after they collapsed... The government began to use Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in part to bail out the private banks and to buy bad portfolios and so forth. And they became part of the resolution mechanism, transferring money from the public sector to the private sector. So you can't look at some of the things that have happened after the government took them over in the collapse of 2008 to make inferences about the kinds of lending they were doing before. Now, you have been out of the government since 2001, correct? I've actually been out of government since 1997. I was in the World Bank from 1997 to 2000. Quasar government, right. Do you miss that world? Uh, Do you ever think about going back to that world? It's been a long time now you've been Uh, back in academia. uh, It's very exciting. It's both frustrating and satisfying. Really difficult problems. Shaping Uh, public policy. Figuring out what to do, then persuading others, because we live in a democratic society. Uh, I can't just decide what I think is the right thing. I have to persuade others. This idea that government officials work nine to five is absurd. 
we had our first meeting at 7 a.m. and I had to prepare all kinds of work before that. So that meant you had to get up at 5 a.m. And we had meetings that would go on till midnight. If you went back into the political sphere... Would you do things differently? Do you think you would have approached your work differently in hindsight? Actually, I, I feel reasonably satisfied about what right. I did with the battles I fought. Sure. Uh, the positions you I took. I fought against the deregulation of the financial sector. And when I was there, <laughs> we did not repeal Glass-Steagall. I guess I w- would have hoped I would have been more successful in some of the battles. You always wish you could have done more. So you, you come back into academia and... Uh, have students changed? One of the things that I think that has changed, certainly since I was a graduate student, is that there are overall fewer of the very best students that go into academia, into public service. One of the major misallocations of the financial sector is the misallocation of our scarcest resource, our young people. And many of them could not resist the temptation of these outsized bonuses. Many of them went in thinking that they would work for a few years, make their fortune, and then do what they want. So they'd rather be Lloyd Blankfein than Joseph Stiglitz, many of them. Uh, and in terms, I, in terms of the uh, I, I, career I, path. Unfortunately, I think a disproportionate number, I don't think they think of it as Lloyd Blankfein, but I, I think the attractions, the lure. Of, the lure of money was irresistible and to is too today many. In your mind. And still today, but more guarded because more of them see the problems of the financial sector, more are aware that money doesn't buy happiness. <laughs> And they want to feel good about their lives and what they do. Do you see yourself in that room sometimes? Um, I find that there are a few students who have that kind of deep curiosity, a few that have a real commitment to help our society, help developing countries. What I find also extraordinarily disturbing is the kind of, you might call, I don't want to say fear, but the worry Are they going to get good jobs? Are they going to get promotions? Does the economics profession care about the things they care about? So when you draw that line from the young man in Gary, Indiana, who was fascinated by the whole quilted nature of the economy in his own hometown, and then went to Amherst, thought he wanted to go into physics, went to MIT, went into economics. When that man wins the Nobel Prize for economics mm-hmm. for that very thinking, how did you feel? Well, obviously, I felt very, uh, very <laughs> pleased. Uh, I think one of the things, though, that as you study things, you understand how complex things are, how much more there is to understand. The other thing, I guess, which has been, you might say, the frustration, is... Well, I think there have been these enormous advances in economic science, in our understanding of the ways markets don't work. Our public policy, our ability to persuade the population in general to move policies that are consistent with these ideas, implement and force, in some ways we've been moving backward. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. The period in which the free market ideas gained 
the upper hand in the United States, beginning in Reagan, 1980, was exactly the period when economic science was explaining why free markets didn't work. Just as we were making real strikes forward in understanding the limitations of markets. Political all, forces were rowing the boat in the opposite direction. Exactly. And, and the increasing difficulty of getting the politics to move in the But in as you direction. said, the great challenge for you of the work you did was you said to sell these ideas to people, to go That's in right. and do the work and then have and a chance to convince. And in democracy, you have to do that. I mean, you I must. can know the answer, but unless I can persuade others, it doesn't do any good. I believe very strongly that, that if we're going to win this battle that I had begun when I was a, a young person at Amherst, one has to persuade others that these are real problems urgent. with the way of market, they are urgent, and that we have answers. Maybe not perfect answers, but answers of things that we could do to make things a lot better. Joseph Stiglitz has written more than 20 books, including the forthcoming The Price of Inequality, How Today's Divided Society Endangers Our Future. You can find more information on our website, heresthething.org. You're listening to Here's the Thing. I'm Alec Baldwin. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.